This is the Find Your Forte podcast, episode 30. We're the conduit from the composer through the choir to that audience. And so we, we have a very important, very important role to facilitate those what I call magic moments in life. You have the passion. You have the education. Now it's time for the inspiration. Get ready to step up to the podium with purpose. This is the Find Your Forte podcast with choral director and lifestyle entrepreneur, Ryan Guth. Hey there, Choir Nation. This is Ryan Guth with the Find Your Forte podcast. I am here with Tim Brown, of formerly of Clare College, Cambridge, uh, who now is enjoying a very busy freelance life centered in Zurich, Switzerland. And uh, he has a lot of wonderful things to share with us today. Uh, I'm going to let him introduce himself. But first, Tim, Choir Nation is ready. They're at the edge of their chairs, folders open and looking your way. Are you ready to deliver the downbeat? I am. Well, fantastic. Now, Choir Nation, I need to tell you that Tim Brown uh, and I first met uh, when he was in residence at Westminster Choir College my senior year, and uh, I really enjoyed my time spent with him in rehearsals, and he has a wonderful personality, and um, there are some, some funny stories that I, I remember that I'm sure I'll bring up through this, this podcast that I hope he remembers as well. And uh, if you want... Uh, Tim's show notes, you're going to head over to ryanguth.com forward slash 030 for episode 30, and you can read his full bio and show notes there. But um, Tim, I'm going to have you tell the choir, to Choir Nation um, a little bit about yourself and what you're doing now and a little bit about your history, the, uh, the Reader's Digest abridged version. And how would you like me to start? <laughs> Well, let's. Well, let let me do this. What are you doing right now? And then I'm going to back you into like the actual question for the downbeat segment. Well, right now I'm in Zurich, having arrived from Cambridge this morning, uh, ready to welcome from Chicago my very good friend Karen Brunson, who is the uh, head of uh, voice at Northwestern University, and she's coming at my invitation to work with my singers in Zurich for a week. And I'm very, very excited about that because she's been before and we're good friends and she's a, a wonder. And I understand that you are directing a professional choir in Zurich, right? I'm I, yes, I, a professional choir, which I began in 2011. Okay, so let's, that's a little bit what's going on right now. Let's go backwards here. And um, I'm going to have you tell us about the moment that you knew you were going to dedicate your life to music. Uh, well, it was a rather surprising moment, I may say, because I thought I was going to be an architect. And I was very keen on architecture. Uh, but I discovered in those days, we're talking 50 years ago now, that you have to be good at mathematics. <laughs> and I discovered I was not good at mathematics. And so I thought I would probably study English at university and then do something with English. All my family are teachers, so I assumed that I would probably end up teaching English in schools. And I, I was a keen singer, and I turned up to King's College, Cambridge, to do a choral scholarship. And as part of that interview, I had to be interviewed for my academic subject. And the head of English had me into his room and he started the interview by saying, I have some notes from your headmaster in which he says, in his opinion, 
you are completely incapable of reading English at university. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? And I think it's the only time in my life I've been spontaneous, but I said, I'll read music without really knowing what I was saying. And he said, well, you better do the music exam and sent me out of his room uh, where I went to discover what, what the music exam meant only to find out that actually the music exam for the university had taken place the day before. So I actually got into Cambridge to study music with no examination uh, and not really quite sure why I was doing it. But I, it was part and parcel of being a choral scholar at King's College Cambridge. And that, that combination of studying music and singing in that fantastic choir, that set me on my musical path. But it was all a little sudden and accidental. So explain to me a little bit about your musical background then. Where Did you sing as a young choral scholar at King's College? I came from a very musical family, and I have an elder brother who was a chorister at Westminster Abbey, a boy chorister. Okay. Indeed, he sang at the Queen's Coronation, and uh, he's three years older than me, and so three years later, I followed in his footsteps as a chorister at Westminster Abbey, had a wonderful time. Then I was lucky enough to go to a secondary school with a fantastic choral program. And at the age of 17, I followed my brother to King's College, Cambridge, as an alto, uh, lay, uh, as an alto choral scholar under the great legendary Sir David Wilcox, who sadly died just a few weeks ago. What an amazing program that must I have mean, been. I mean, that was at the beginning. I mean, I, I did my three years at King's. Uh -huh. and then I went to Oxford to do a teaching diploma and had the good fortune to sing in the choir of New College, Oxford. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to go from Cambridge to Oxford? I thought there was a, a major rivalry there. Well, there is, but it's, it's fine at graduate level. So oh, okay. I was a graduate and sang in New College choir for one year and deputized in Christchurch Cathedral choir quite often. So I, I had the most amazing experience. I mean, I sang in Westminster Abbey, which was one of the best choirs in the world when I was there, King's College Choir, which probably was the best choir in the world when I was there, New College, which was definitely not the best, college, uh, best choir in the world when I sang in it, but was great fun and I had a wonderful experience in Oxford. And then after that, I was a professional singer for three years in a newly formed vocal ensemble called The Scholars, which was a, a successor to the King Singers, which was just three or four years okay. our senior, and also made up of ex-King's College choral scholars. So, I mean, that was an amazing training, but I was never a good solo singer. And so it was, in fact, more sensible for me to stop doing that and become a school teacher. And I became a school teacher for 10 years, doing what school teachers do, teaching academic music and running school choirs and orchestras. And then, uh, almost by chance, I was told about the job at Clare College, which was a new post back in 1979, and uh, I got the post. And I was at Clare College as director of music, running the choir there for 31 years. And you were, you were the first director of Clare College, Cambridge. I was the first kind of full-time director. John Rutter, the great John Rutter. Never heard of him. No, I'm kidding. None of us heard of him. Uh, but he was my predecessor. Okay. And he kind of got the program going, but it was, it was kind of part-time and not really, not really the big thing. And then he decided to, to do composition full-time. And so they sat down and created this sort of full-time post. 
and I was the first holder of it and um, had a wonderful time. And in fact, last night, just 24 hours ago, uh, I and my successor uh, at uh, Clare College, Graham, uh, Graham Ross, mm -hmm. co-hosted um, uh, a 70th birthday uh, concert and choral evensong in honor of John Rutter. So we had three choral directors there and a vast choir of alumni and lots of people in the audience. And uh, we had a, a fantastic bonanza. Oh, bonanza. That's a fantastic. That's a great word. That a fantastic bonanza. Yes. And I mean, it's not difficult to have a bonanza with John Rutter because he enjoys a good time. <laughs> Very good. So what did the job at, at Claire entail? I mean, I, I don't know that Choir Nation knows much about uh, the British system of, of the choral world. So what, what did that entail? You have a, a, a fairly limited time on this broadcast. Uh, so I'll just I'll try and short circuit Great. the process. But uh, Cambridge and Oxford both have, I don't know, 25, 30 individual colleges. And those colleges each have a chapel. And many of them, both in Oxford and in Cambridge, many of them have very good choirs. And Clare College is one of the first colleges to go co-ed. Uh, back in about 1971, okay. and it, it therefore was one of the first colleges to have a co-educational choir. Um, I, you know, what we used to is boys and men, um, and in some cases just men where there were no boys. But Clare College was the first, uh, first Oxford or Cambridge choir to have female choral scholars, sopranos and altos, who were members of the college. And I was lucky enough to be in at the, uh, just, just after the start of that and really part of the creation of the tradition, which is now fully accepted, of having uh, cathedral-type choirs with sopranos and female altos as the top two lines. And that's been a very, very exciting road. I went to a concert a couple of days ago in King's Chapel where I heard some students performing the Monteverdi Vespers. And I remember remarking to uh, a former student of mine who was there and, and, and saying to her, you know, just think what it was like 30 years ago. The sopranos were all trying to sound like boy trebles. Mm -hmm. Now they're proud to be sopranos. And I, in many ways, the, the, the soprano sound has come of age. And, and the, the mixed voice choirs in, in Cambridge and Oxford, the best of them, like, like uh, Trinity College and Clare College and Keyes College and so on, uh, have a remarkably high standard, and I'm I'm proud to have been part of that kind of journey, which which carries on to this day. Do you feel like that was a a really essential social tool in you know and I, mean, I want to say tool, but um, that was a really progressive step for for Cambridge to to have a mixed gender choral program at Clare. It was a, it was part of something which is become national. I mean, it was very important. Of course, if you have women in the college, why should they not sing in the college choir? So in a way, there was no, it was you know, a no-brainer, but it was also, uh, I mean, politically, uh, it was impossible not to resist it. And mm -hmm. there's no way I would have resisted it, but uh, the women had to have the opportunity to sing in the choir. And then it was a question of, of creating a sound which worked. And as I said earlier, the, the, the tradition in England was of boy choirs, of, mm -hmm. of trebles and men. 
And so girls thought that they, if they were going to sing the great choral repertoire, they should sound like boy trebles. And I remember in the early days in Clare, back in the 1980s, if we did a broadcast, I would very often get letters saying, Dear Mr. Brown, I'd so enjoyed your even song on the, on the BBC, and I particularly enjoyed the sound of your boy trebles. Uh, <laughs> little and did it, they know. It took me about 10 years uh, before people actually understood that it was women singing the top line and, and the women themselves were prepared to sound like women. What a unique and healthy sound your boys are producing. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, but, I mean, it, it, one had to educate the girls because the girls came from girls' schools and mm-hmm. girls' schools were, on the whole, uh, taught music by women who didn't know, hadn't themselves sung in choirs and had no idea of the kind of sound they were trying to create. And so they just did what was natural, which was to ape the sound of cathedral choruses. Right. And it's, it's, it is fantastic. I mean, you were talking earlier of listening to the choir Tenebrae. Um, these choirs like Tenebrae, the Clarks, um, the, the Sixteen, the um, Monteverdi Choir and so on, they've all come about because of the, uh, the wonderful work in Oxford and Cambridge in the College Chapel Choirs and the top lines of those professional choirs, many of them now have been through the Oxbridge, as we call it, the Oxbridge system, and have learned the skills alongside their male counterparts, the tenors and basses. Well, it sounds like, it sounds like the world of English choral music has, has come very far in the last 30, 40 years. It's come a long way. And I mean, I, one of the reasons I stopped in, 19, uh, sorry, in 2010 was because I decided that I had taken the choir as far as I could, 31 years down the line, and it was time for somebody else to, to pick up the baton and run with it. And um, I'm very proud of the, the, my successor, who is in fact a former student of mine, a former member of the choir, um, has done just that. And, and he's now taking the choir onto uh, ever greater heights, which is, that's as it should be. I had the pleasure of seeing uh, Graham Ross and the Clare College Choir uh, in Princeton a couple of years ago when they were on tour and uh, was incredibly impressed with what they were doing. And um, it was a very small concert, maybe 50 people. It was in a small chapel in in Princeton, New Jersey. And uh, I wouldn't have known about the concert unless they had been wearing, they were wearing tour jackets. And I, they had, that had, Clare College United States tour on the back of the jacket, and I was in the little small world coffee company uh, <laughs> at in Princeton, and I walked up to this guy, and I was like, are you in the choir? And he says, I'm the director. And I said, oh my God, are you Graham Ross? And he said, yes, I am. I said, are you singing tonight? And he goes, <laughs> yeah. I was like, how do I not know this? So that is a... Uh, Little story about the importance of, of marketing and PR when your when your choir comes to town, which was probably the fault of whoever was hosting them. But um, I was so impressed with what, what what he was doing, and he's such a young guy too to he's, have such a wonderful very, program. He's very very young. He was the youngest uh, choral director, um, but I mean he's uh, he is fantastic at everything. I am extremely bad at. I mean marketing. There are no flies on him at all. I mean, when it comes to websites and, and YouTubes and, and recording the choir and even song and all this stuff, I mean, he's fantastic. I'm afraid I, I belong to a kind of Neanderthal generation of 
couple of directors who just got on with their daily even song and didn't really understand that there was a world outside. <laughs> well, we forgive you, and uh, and you've had a wonderful career, so there's there's no apologies necessary for that. <laughs> so tell us a story when things didn't go as planned that potentially, upon looking back, you may consider to be a failure moment, but that that may have uh, given you a wonderful lesson or takeaway? Well, of course, there are always moments. I mean, every day is a trial. I mean, you're trying to do something, and, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. I've always been somebody who likes to go to the edge when it comes to making music. And uh, so I, I've never been one of these uh, people who is a kind of safe interpreter of anything. I always like to to look at every piece of music in a different way and every situation in a different way. And um, I suppose one is one the victim of one's own personality, uh, inevitably. And I, I suppose I am certainly not political. And so I suppose I've had my fingers burnt on more than one occasion when I've probably stepped out of line. But actually, when I look back, I am very proud of the fact that I have been true to myself and true to my beliefs in situations. And um, it's always interesting when, when you feel that something's gone wrong, that you've perhaps mishandled a situation. It's quite amusing when two, three, four, five, six years later, somebody comes up to you and says, do you remember such and such? And you say, yes thinking, oh, what, what terrible story is he going to bring out? <laughs> and, and they say, you know, that was a pivotal moment in my life, and I was so impressed by what you did. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been with me ever since. And you think, well, perhaps th that moment that I thought was a failure wasn't quite such a failure. So I suppose uh, it's difficult in a way to say that something was a failure, something that might have been judged in the moment not to be a success, has sometimes turned out to be absolutely a success. And I mean, on a very small scale, every time you do a performance, you're very concerned about the performers you're working with. And I remember on more than one occasion conducting a choir, and when you're, when you're working with a choir and with choristers, you're, you're, you're wanting everybody to have a good time. And there'll be somebody standing in front of you, very often a girl who looks really kind of grumpy and sudden. <laughs> and you think, well, come on, well, I'm doing my best. I'm really trying to work with you. I'm really trying to have fun with you. And all you can look is really bad tempered and miserable. And at the end of the whole thing, you think, well, I failed there. I just never got through to that girl. And you can bet your bottom dollar <clears throat> that that's the person who comes up to you when the whole thing is over and says, Tim, that was the most fantastic project. <laughs> and you feel like saying, well, why didn't you show it when you were... Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah, they make you sweat it out. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, people aren't always very good at kind of expressing what they really think. Mm. And uh, so I've learned that you just have to stick to your guns. And you, the whole time you just have to... To be very secure in why you're doing everything. If you're, if you thought things through and you're secure in what you're doing, then I, I believe that one should just plow on. And uh, if it, you, if a few people get upset, you'll probably find that later on the majority think you were doing a very good job. And I'm sure that that's how I managed to 
make Clare Choir better and better and better over the years. It wasn't by being chummy and friendly and uh, always being happy. It was challenging people mm -hmm. to always produce their best. And sometimes people are resistant to that. And you think, well, am I pushing them too far? And I think on the whole, um, I think history tells me that um, I did okay. <laughs> right. So, so the lesson, it sounds like the lesson here is, is a couple things. And I, I can take it to an entrepreneurial standpoint, but from what I'm hearing, and this is, I don't know, this is, is this American lingo, but stick to your guns, Yes. you know, and, um, be true, you know, be true to yourself. And the other thing about that is in, in sort of entrepreneurial speak, um, we say, you know, if you try to sell to everyone, you'll sell to no one. And so if you try, basically, if you try to please everybody, yeah. um, then you'll end up not pleasing anyone. And you have to, you know, the people who are true leaders uh, tend to be polarizing at some points. And, you know, you'll have people that, that love you passionately uh, for your work, and you'll have another group of people who, who hate your guts and, and you know, potentially disagree with the way you go about your career. And, uh, but you'll probably have more respect from even those people from, for sticking to your guns and doing what you believe is, is the right thing to do. So, I remember at Clare Choir, two occasions, actually, there was a, a very charming American tenor student uh, in my choir. And he, he was a bit feckless. I mean, he really didn't know how to concentrate. He really didn't know how to stick at things. And he came to me one day and said, oh, I think I can give up the choir. And I said, Edward, I don't want you to give up the choir. You're a fantastic tenor and you need to be singing. And he said, well, I don't really enjoy it. I think I'd rather just stick to my law or whatever he was studying. And I said, Edward, you need to be singing. And he went and complained to one of his tutors that I was being unfair and bullying him. And his tutor said to me, you can't make him sing in the choir if he doesn't want to sing in the choir. And I said, well, he's a really good tenor and he's, he's going to regret it if he doesn't. And so I saw Edward again and I had a big blazing row with him. And I kind of browbeat him to stay on in the choir and he kind of went away with his tail between his legs. And I thought, well, maybe I've overstepped the mark. And actually, that was a turning point. That was where he, he really thought about it and became a very, very good tenor in my choir and very committed. And there was another occasion when there was a girl singing alto and she was, to, to be crude, she was kind of useless. She, <laughs> she was just useless. And I knew, if she was a music student, I knew that she could sing. I knew that she could do this. But she was just pathetic. And uh, there was a particular... How did you really feel, Tim? How did I really feel? <laughs> How did I really feel? I felt, I felt really cross. That's what I felt. <laughs> and there, were, there was a bit of William Byrd with a very low alto part. And I needed more alto. Mm -hmm. And I got very cross with her. And she got very cross with me. And suddenly... She thought, well, you silly man, if you want all this noise, I'm going to yell at you. And she produced a noise like a roaring lion. <laughs> and everyone in the choir dropped dead. I mean, it was just the first time she'd made a noise. 
<laughs> and it was fantastic. <laughs> That's I tell great. you, she never looked back. I mean, she was a brilliant singer from that moment on. She realised that if she just let out this roar, it was fantastic. And she'll be a great friends to this day. And she became a wonderful alto. So there you go. You have to, sometimes you have to push and you have to push. And at the same time, you have to be as supportive as you possibly can. That's right. Well, sometimes you have to lead people out of their comfort zone. And you have to lead people out of their comfort zone. That's exactly right. And I've never shied of doing, for, I've never shied away from doing that. And I think by and large, it's worked. I mean, I have to say it hasn't worked every single time, but by and large, it has worked. And um, I remember another guy I saw last night who is now the uh, chaplain of King's College, Cambridge. He was in my choir and he was kind of an also-ran bass, but he had a wonderful low voice. But he didn't take it seriously. And we did a concert and we did a piece of shoots with a wonderful bass solo in it. And I said, Andrew, I'd like you to sing this. And he could have said no, but he chose to say yes. And he did that piece and it was conducted by Roger Norrington and he got such an incredible buzz from it that he decided to become a professional singer and he had a career as an opera singer before he went into the church. And now he's the presenter at King's College where he can happily sing the responses like an opera singer and it's fantastic. Wow. That's great. So it's pushing and pushing and pushing. But you have to be kind of certain of your ground. You have to kind of realize that these uh, people have it in them and that if you can entice them to doing it, uh, then maybe they're going to have a fantastic time. Well, that's the qualities of a great teacher. So thank you for sharing that. So what was your proudest musical moment to date? And I know this is a tough question. But what do you feel as though, or what makes you most proud? It doesn't need to be a specific moment, but uh, what makes you most proud as a teacher? And I feel like you definitely hit on some of that in this last question. But um, well, I can tell you, the, very, the, the proudest moment at the beginning of my life was to stand up as a new chorister in Westminster Abbey in the choir stalls. And I think it was my first service. And I was nine years old, ten years old, ten years old. And it was the funeral of Ralph Vaughan Williams. And there I was as a new chorister in Westminster Abbey with an orchestra, all the great and the good, the composers, the politicians, the writers, the artists. And there I was singing this amazing music by Vaughan Williams at his funeral. And that was, a, I mean, as a boy, that was the first kind of moment where I thought, this is just fabulous. And there have been kind of moments like that uh, you know, big kind of high-profile moments. Mm. I brought, took my choir from Zurich to the BBC Promenade concerts. It, at the end of their third season, they sang the St John Passion in the BBC Promenade concerts. Now, in England, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. That's a huge deal. And, to, and I was immensely proud that they could, could have come from nothing to be standing up in the Albert Hall and singing a live performance of, of the St John Passion. That was an amazing moment. But to be honest, I think one of the most amazing moments I had only two weeks ago when I went to Columbia uh, at the invitation of a former Westminster Choir College student who is from Columbia. And I went to do choral workshops in southern Columbia and then in Bogota. And in southern Bogota, uh, in southern Columbia, in Pasto, 
I was working in an incredibly deprived situation, a university with no money. I mean, no music stands, no, but more or less no pianos. Students who were really, um, it, you know, it was, it was a tremendous effort for them to be music students. Mm -hmm. And they had very, very few opportunities to, to, to do much choral conducting, very few opportunities to really learn. I mean, Pasto is 20 hours by bus away from Bogota, and practically everything happens in Bogota. So, you know, this was the back of beyond. And I had a week working with these students and with two wonderful choirs, a university choir and a children's choir, who were the sort of guinea pig choir. And the, the appreciation uh, for my efforts well, it was very, very humbling. And they were just so pleased to be doing this. Now, this was away from any fanfare, you know, no radio broadcast, no gramophone records, no, uh, no tralala at all. It was just, just quietly getting on with stuff in a place which needs it. And I was, that was a proud moment for me to be able to bring something from my experience and share it with these young students and in a way, hopefully to inspire them. And I met amongst them three or four really talented young singers. And I did some private coaching with them. And I think I was able to say, look, you know, if, if you really apply yourself and if you make the right connections and if you can get yourself to Bogota and you can get yourself from Bogota to Europe or from Bogota to North America, you will find that you can also have a career. And to, to have the privilege of working with these people, these young musicians like that, for me, that's, that's as proud as any high-profile concert. Imagine how many lives the choral world could change if, if we had more outreaches like that, you know, to bringing great conductors to these, these places that really, really appreciate it. And just the comments you made to those people, I'm sure, changed their lives. Well, I, I have to say, one of my views all the way through my life has been that young musicians wanting to be choral conductors, they start off conducting amateur choirs. They start off conducting school choirs. Mm -hmm. And their mission in life is to graduate to professional choirs, to professional opera houses, to radio choirs and so on. And they leave these amateur choirs behind. And I've I'm always sad back in England that so few of the great professional conductors spent any time working with amateur singers. That's a and good point. We are just now mourning the death of Sir David Wilcox, mm -hmm. one of the great, great, great English choral directors. And all the obituaries speak of his fantastic communication with amateur singers. And mm -hmm. However great he became, you know, the knighthood and everything else, it, it didn't matter that he was conducting the London Bark Choir or he was conducting for the royalty or whatever he was doing. He was as happy as anything to get back to the coalface and work with really, really raw amateur singers. And everybody talks of that, the amazing twinkle in his eye when he worked with people who had no experience and had very little talent, and yet somehow he was able to draw gold out of it. You know, that sounds like a, a, a parallel that we have here in the U.S. mourning the loss of um, the wonderful, late, great Helen Kemp, 
uh, here in the U.S. And ah, um, she died. Yeah, she yeah she passed away um, a little over a month ago. Right. From when we're speaking now, and uh, 97 years old, she was one of the first people on this podcast, episode four, <laughs> and um, I interviewed her in her living room, and she the day before her 97th birthday, and she was still working with choirs, and she had an amazing, uh, amazing affinity for working with with amateur choirs, especially children, mm-hmm. and uh, you know at, at her level, she could have worked with just about anybody. But, you know, she really spent her life giving to um, those who needed it most. And, and she felt as though even if you weren't living in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, you know, and you, and you were living in, in the middle of Wyoming or something like that, you still deserved the most high quality choral education uh, because so your geographical restrictions uh, didn't become an issue and, and finances didn't become an issue. You know, she was able to go around the country and work with, with anyone and bring that high quality education to them. And uh, uh, that's exactly my belief. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it touched, and I'm sure it touches so many more people. It's, it's very hard to touch a, a professional singer in a profound way, <laughs> you know, but you're going to reach, that's why it's so wonderful, you know, here in the U.S. having these, um, you know, all state choir festivals and things like that, because you, you're taking, you know, two, three hundred high school students and bringing this fantastic conductor that, you know, even if they go on to study English or, or something in, in, in college, uh, they're getting an opportunity as a high school student to make real meaningful music with a really, really great conductor. And, and those experiences are often the ones that I'm sure 20, 30 years into their career, they think, man, I would love to go back to that point when I was in high school and sang with that fantastic choir. It's one of those things that stick out uh, for, for people. I mean, I've heard adults time and time again just tell me when they find out that I'm a choir director that, uh, oh, you know, some of my most favorite times in life were when I was singing in choir. And, you know, or, or I worked with this amazing choir director because I was in the Allstate Choir in, in Oklahoma or something. And, um, you know, a lot of always warm, fuzzy memories from but those it, amateur singers. But singing somehow releases the emotions which are so, so important. And it may be singing or it may be listening to singing, mm-hmm. but they are those. The critical times in life are when we're touched by music, and so often we're touched by choral music. And last night we were celebrating in Cambridge the 70th birthday of John Rutter, and uh, we had this marvelous service. And the preacher at the service was recalling how last week he he's the the. Um, uh, he's the master of the Temple Church in London, and he was recalling how there were three funeral services, uh, sorry, two funeral services last week and one marriage. And the two funeral services concluded with a motet by John Rutter, and the marriage service concluded with a motet by John Rutter. Mm-hmm. And on all three occasions, he said the, audit, the congregation in the church just melted. And people were writing to him afterwards and speaking to him and saying, you know, that was the moment in the service when somehow our hearts were most touched. And he was saying this at John's, in front of John last night and saying, you know, you, you as a composer have touched 
so many people. Mm -hmm. And as conductors, we are the vehicle which we are the conduit from the composer through the choir to that audience. And so we, we have a very important, mm -hmm. very important role to facilitate those, what I call magic moments in life. I couldn't agree with you more. So I, I, I really feel like this is, we're sort of heading into the forte section of, of the interview. I feel like we've, we've touched upon that because obviously one of your passions is working with amateur choirs. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I adore working with amateur choirs. And I have to say, working with those, uh, those very naive uh, young musicians down in Colombia last week, I mean, they knew so little. And yet their enthusiasm, the glow in their eyes was, was fantastic. And sometimes in, in Switzerland, I get really, really fed up being faced by 40 or 50 professional singers with oodles of talent, mm -hmm. and yet they stand there with no joy in their face, no, 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 no reaction to the music. Mm -hmm. And I get so frustrated. And so one of the things you get from working with students and with amateur singers, with young people, is that kind of wide-eyed uh, enjoyment. Yes. And, well, like last week when I went to King's College Chapel and heard... Uh, the Montevideo Vespers, performed by a choir of whom the oldest person could only have been 21, 22. Mm -hmm. And I just sat there thinking, you know, these kids, they're all so young, and yet the talent the, 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 and the, the, the kind of spirit in their singing, you'll never better that amongst professional musicians of 20, 30 years standing. Well, there's, there's a definite appreciation for for singing when it's not what you do day in and day out. You know, I, I've recently uh, begun to, to visit with uh, a colleague here in, in New York City, uh, his amateur choir, uh, community choir, and, you know, they're coming from backgrounds and, you know, 50, 60-hour weeks in finance and law and, and, you know, public service and things, and they're coming. They just cannot wait to, to get to rehearsal on Thursday night. Yeah. You know, because it means something so much more to them. And where I could sit in that rehearsal as a professional musician and be like, okay, this is, this is fun, I guess. But, you yeah. know, but these people next to me are just aglow the entire night because, because they've been looking forward to this rehearsal all week long. Because uh, it, it's so much more fun than working on Wall Street. Or Well, I know that I'm going to be having the most fantastic week this week, because I'm here in Zurich uh, to meet tomorrow my dear friend and colleague, Karen Brunson from Chicago. And she is the most astonishing uh, teacher, singer, musician that I've ever come across. And uh, I, I met her in Chicago at an ADACDA um, uh, uh, convention. She was giving workshops on singing for conductors, and I was doing a choral workshop with the conductors. And I sat and listened to her talking about what, sing what conductors should know about singing. And uh, she got out of the audience. She just dragged five conductors who didn't think they were singers. And within three or four minutes was producing the most magical sounds from them. And this is a woman who 
has had a career, a distinguished career as a singer, has always sung in choirs and has always taught singing ever since she was 20, 21 and has this sort of complete understanding of the vocal art and also of those people who enjoy the vocal art, not only soloists, but people who sing in choirs. And I will sit through her lessons this week with my singers in Zurich. And I know that every, every one of those lessons, she will inspire those singers in some way that they come in and an hour later, they go out walking on air because of her just her amazing sort of pedagogical skills, but also her sheer joy in the act of singing. And that communicates itself in the most extraordinary way. And she, she has the ability to make seasoned professionals, uh, as well as raw amateurs, um, just get excited about singing in a way that's totally remarkable. I, I learn so much every time I watch her doing it and think, if only I had this. <laughs> amazing power <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's yes it is definitely not all technique it's i'm sure it's a combination of technique and charisma and i and i wonder if that can be taught you can't you can't teach charisma and but i i have one of the things i say to my students all the time is technique is really not the whole story mm -hmm. it's if the danger about becoming over technical is that you bury your personality. And actually, at the end of the day, what makes a good performance is the personality of the musician, yeah. not their technique. And indeed, we can look at dozens and dozens of very famous con uh, conductors, orchestral and choral conductors, and we sit there and thinking, well, just a minute, what is that technique all about? And yet somehow they can produce the most wonderful, um, wonderful music. So, uh, I, I mean, the charisma is your personality and never ever bury your personality well said well said well let's move on to the accelerando round this is our this is our third round here this is a little bit more rapid fire as far as the questions are concerned so um i'm not going to do much responding but you'll do most of the talking and it'll be you know 30 to 30 seconds to a minute each okay. so what project are you most excited about right now uh, well, <clears throat> I'm very excited about my final, my fifth year with the Sing Academy here in uh, Zurich, and uh, uh, the f the final concert I should be doing with with them at the end of the season will be the Jaratzeiten of Haydn, conducted by René Jacobs, and I'll be preparing the choir for him. Uh, and alongside that, I'm working with um, what we call pro-ams because sometimes we do concerts here in which we mix professional singers with good amateur singers, mm -hmm. and we call those good amateur singers pro-ams. And I'm doing a concert with just them at Christmas of, of, of choral classics. Um, and uh, so there we're back to working with amateurs, and I shall love doing that. But it's really to bring the choir, the Zing Academy, to its greatest pitch at the end of my five years before I hand over to somebody else. Now, will we have a little bit of a mix of David Wilcox's carols in that Christmas concert? Um, actually, no. I oh, think only, goodness. I, I think, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say, the only carols that we're doing, I think, are my arrangements. I'm sorry that I asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> we should be, shouldn't we? We should be celebrating 
Perhaps we should, no, now you've got me thinking. Maybe I should stick something in in his memory. But Well, I'd, I'd be happy to take a place on the front of that program <laughs> as the inspiration for your Thanks. concert. <laughs> so what advice do you have for your younger self? I think, I, I, I think to be less worried about failure. I think when I was young, I was always every project had to be perfect. And I think sometimes when you try to make every project perfect, you kind of get stuck in yourself. And I, and I, I think just get on with it and enjoy doing things. And I think, of, on a, I'm afraid on a professional level, I should have been a better self-promoter. I was never good at doing that. I've never been good at kind of, you know, trailblazing and telling everyone how wonderful I was. But there you go, that's me. <laughs> so in your opinion, what do you believe makes an outstanding conductor? I think you have to be passionate about music and you have to be able to communicate your passion. And at the same time, I think you should have a deep commitment uh, to the well-being of your performers. And I try very hard to mix and match those two things. I, I, the older I get, I think in some ways, the more obviously passionate I become about music. And I'm certainly very concerned that I know everybody in my choir and know what they're going through. And you know, to have a, a good professional relationship with them, I think is terribly important. Mm -hmm. What um, is your ideal 60 to 90 minutes in the morning look like? <laughs> I'm not sure I want to tell you this. Because <laughs> it's kind of all about routine. And I think routine is not something that I'm great at. But I do actually now, uh, I'm the proud possessor of three little dogs called cockapoos. Oh, okay. <laughs> Cocker spaniels crossed with poodles. Uh, two brothers and a sister. And they are totally adorable. But... If I'm not up at seven o'clock in the morning, there's trouble. Uh, so I'm, my routine starts with a bark from one of them, which means I have to get up and let them out. Uh, and that inevitably means breakfast for them and for me, and then emails. So it's a very kind of now boring routine, but it's, I think now that I have three dogs, I just have to be very organized. Well, you're saving money on an alarm clock. I am indeed saving money on an alarm clock, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So what is the most favorite concert that you've attended? Um, gosh, the favorite concert, I think one of the concerts that I most remember was quite by accident. I took a group of school children to a concert in London and uh, rather stupidly, I got the wrong day. It, was, it turned out to be the following day. So there I was in London with a group of music students from the school I was teaching at. And so I looked on the program of the Royal Festival Hall and discovered that Otto Klemperer was performing, uh, I think it was Bruckner 7. Okay. And it was one of the very, very last concerts uh, he conducted. We got the cheapest seats, which meant having seats directly behind the orchestra where the choir would normally sit. So I had the... That sounds awesome. I mean, it was awesome. There <laughs> I was uh, with these kids uh, 30 feet from this world-famous conductor who I may say was so ill then that he had to be carried onto the stage and placed on the podium. Oh. And he barely had enough strength to raise his hands. But just the flick of a wrist and the orchestra played like a dream. And I think that was 
that was about charisma. And I think I learned so much. And it's, I've never forgotten that concert. I mean, just the extraordinary power of music coming mm -hmm. from somebody who seemed to be doing practically nothing. So what is your favorite personal growth and or music book? Oh, my goodness me. Personal growth. Well, it's about patience. I'm a very impatient person, and I think I've spent my life learning to be patient. Mm -hmm. Patience is terribly important, actually, because if you're not patient, you sometimes miss things. And, uh, and also learning to be compassionate. I'm very interested in politics and very interested in what goes on in the world. And I'm always wanting to make other people's lives better. Mm -hmm. And I do that in my way through music, but that's very important to me. So that's, I suppose, my personal growth is, is learning patience and learning compassion and, and trying to share that with, with other people. Is, is there a particular book that comes to mind when, when you think of that subject? Is there, is, there, is there a book that you give people as a gift? Do you know, I'm not good on that sort of thing, and I've been less good over the last few years when my eyesight's been so bad that I found reading difficult. So I've kind of stopped reading serious books very much mm -hmm. uh, over, the, over the last few years. And I should certainly get some new spectacles and start again. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know, actually. I suppose, I suppose when it comes to it, it, it's, it is a, it's, it's something like Shakespeare, which I find in the, the plays of Shakespeare and indeed the poetry of Shakespeare and other poets, uh, very important. Well, Choir Nation and Tim, you should know that if you want to support the Find Your Forte podcast, Audible, which is a fantastic service for people that don't have the time to or, or the eyesight to sit down and read a book, can listen to any audio book that's available from Amazon.com. So if you head over to www.ryanguth.com forward slash 030, there will be a link to audible.com where you can get a free audiobook of your choosing directly from that website and support the Find Your Forte podcast. So it's a wonderful app for your phone and you can listen to so many wonderful books uh, through Audible. And I listen to books in the car all the time because I have quite a long commute to my, to my company. So... Uh, that is that is how I stay up on my books, is audible.com. I shall investigate. Yeah, I hope you do. I hope you do. <laughs> so when you think of success, who is the first person that comes to mind? Are we talking about music? Anything. It, success in life. Success in life. Oh, my goodness me. I mean, there are so many people who are wonderful. I'm... I'm I mean... At the moment, we've been celebrating John Rutter's 70th birthday, and I actually think of him. I mean, he's, he is an extraordinarily successful person. He's successful in a professional sense. sense. He's, he's successful in a personal sense. I think of Karen Brunson, who I'm going to meet tomorrow. Successful in a professional sense, successful in a personal sense. And then, of course, there are the global leaders that we, uh, that, that we all know about. Um, David Wilcox, another musician who's just died and was on everyone's mind at the moment, and a person I knew very, very well because he lived down the road from me. So I saw him regularly until just a month before he died. And uh, he's somebody who was immensely successful professionally, immensely successful on a personal level. 
Um, but I mean, many of those people are people that nobody else has heard of. I mean, they're just people you come across and they may be very modest people. Um, What's the common thread, you think? I think the common thread is being outgoing. It's a, it's, those are people who think about other people. Mm-hmm. They're not self-absorbed. All right. Now, if you had one concert left in your lifetime, this is the big one. If you had one concert left in your lifetime, a choir with limitless ability, which I'm sure is very easy to find in England, and access to a sold-out concert venue of your choosing, number one, where would your final concert be? And two, what would be the final piece on that program? I think where it would be is very easy. It would be King's College Chapel. Okay. Because for me, that's such an iconic space. It's such a wonderful acoustic for the right music. Uh, so it would have to be the right music. And in that space, uh, for me, the piece which still remains my number one hit, and I'm looking forward to uh, being the chorus master for, for Bernard Heitink in January doing it, is the Brahms Requiem. It's the second gramophone record that I bought aged 11. I still have that gramophone record performed by um, a, a, a Berlin choir. It's not a very good performance, but it, it somehow struck me and I've never ever, I've never got it out of my system. The piece in it, which for me is always a total winner, is uh, How Lovely Are Thy Dwellings. Uh, the fourth movement of the mm-hmm. Brahms Requiem just never, never ceases to get to me. And uh, so that's in a way very easy. If for some reason all the music was unavailable and nobody in the orchestra could play it, well, then it would be the St. Matthew Passion. Okay. But Matthew Passion, number two. Great. Give the listeners some parting words of encouragement and then the best way that we can connect with you moving forward. <laughs> well, <laughs> Interestingly enough, the, uh, the, the, the words of encouragement, well, that's easy. I mean, enjoy every moment as if it's your last. I mean, the, as I get older, the more I realize that you don't know how many more moments you have in your life. And you, sh- you should just be aware that this moment, this moment now is the special moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Uh, this sounds a bit pious, actually, but I've always felt this. I think we, we should be aware of our talents. And I think musicians should be mindful that their special ability may not be one that's shared by many other people. Mm-hmm. And therefore, one should be as generous as one possibly can in sharing it with others who do not have that ability. And I sometimes get cross with students who are, and in Cambridge, I'm surrounded by brilliance, but by students who have loads of ability, but somehow take it for granted. And I, I, want, to, I want to shake them and say, look, you know, you have this fantastic ability to sing or fantastic ability to play, and you're squandering it. You're not bothering with it. And yet there's somebody down the road who has none of those sorts of abilities. And you have, you have the ability to to, to make magic and make it, make it for yourself, make it for other people. Thank you. All right. Well, how can we find out what Tim Brown is doing in the future? 
You may find that quite difficult, actually, because <laughs> I say I don't have, I don't have a website. Well, we will fix that. So I don't, I don't do Twitter. I have no idea even what Twitter is. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I have no idea what Instagram is. I do, I do do email, and I do do Facebook. You do Facebook. So we I, we will put a link to your Facebook profile. I do Facebook, and I, and and uh, uh, having been to Colombia uh, recently. Uh, I now have, I think, about 60 new <laughs> Facebook friends who are all Colombians. And I'm desperately trying to remember who they all were. <laughs> Fortunately, on Facebook, there are pictures, which is great, so I can see them. Well, hopefully and they I, remind you every time they click that like button. Well, you know, it's, it is, I, you just have to say this, it's fantastic. When you meet musicians and you say to them, look, keep in touch. When you come to England, get in touch with me. And I have friends now from all over the world and I may have met them just on, in one concert, on one workshop, or in one uh, singing week or somewhere. And I say, look, when you're in England, get in touch. And they do. And I now have these wonderful friends all over the world through music. It's a wonderful thing. Well, thank you so much, Tim. And I know that Choir Nation is even more ready to step up to the podium with purpose. And thank you so much for being my guest today on Find Your Forte. It's been a huge privilege and pleasure. Thank you very much, Ryan. Well, there you have it, folks. My interview with Tim Brown, formerly of Clare College, Cambridge, who is obviously still very active in the choral world these days. So head on over to www.ryanguth.com to grab the show notes from this episode so that you have uh, the different interesting takeaways uh, that were discussed here. And uh, also make sure that you subscribe on iTunes, leave me a review, and check us out next week, next Tuesday for Technique Tuesday, and next Wednesday for another wonderful episode of Find Your Forte. Thank you for listening to Find Your Forte with Ryan Guth. As always, join Ryan online at www.ryanguth.com for detailed show notes and discussions on every episode. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. Until next time, be amazing. I have, I'm going to turn the record button back on because before, I'm going to add a little Easter egg here at the end of your episode. I need to know... And this needs, I need to clarify this because I tell people this story and I sing this song to people when I talk about Tim Brown and my experience. Can you please tell me the origin of that Wee Wee Tot song that you sang? You sang it during a Messiah rehearsal. I think Messiah was going really poorly my senior year. And you just stopped and sang this song. And I had no idea where it came from. And when it was all done, we all looked at each other and said, what the hell just happened? <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you sing that song and then give me the origin behind it or vice versa? I haven't sang it for a long time, but I think I can. The origin of it is uh, Brian Kay. Brian Kay is a founder member of the King Singers. Mm-hmm. And he sang it one evening at, uh, after dinner at the Eddington Music Festival when I think we had a few beers. And, he, you know, people were singing this and that and the other, and he, somehow, he came out with this. And it went, When I was a wee-wee tot They took me from my wee-wee cot And put me on my wee-wee pot 
to see if I would wee or not. When they saw that I did not, they took me from my wee-wee pot and put me in my wee-wee cot where I did wee-wee a lot. <laughs> That's